Chick, chick, chick. Y'all ready? Is it live? Should we go? Yep. Okay. Welcome to Love You Live. <laughs> On your weekend, K Fog. So listen, live, we were talking about this, and we'll have everybody introduce themselves, and they'll tell you who they are and what their perspective is, what they do so that you know what they mean when they answer some of the things we're going to talk about. But live, for most of us, seems like it's one-dimensional, right? There's all these things that could be happening, but we've been experiencing live the same way for our entire lives, and it's never really changed or gotten to be too incredibly different or differentiated. What I mean by that is I get an email or I find out from Ticketmaster or somebody that there's a concert. I round up a couple friends, we get some tickets, or we wait to the last minute and get whatever, you know, we get tickets. You go and it's like, okay, get a beer once you get there, get a t-shirt, you sit down, you watch the show, you take out your phone and you take a picture so that you can show up with your friends, hey, look where I am, put it up on Facebook, put it up on Twitter. Maybe record it for a little bit, and that, I mean, the picture and the recording sucks, so what's the point of all that? But anyway, we do it anyway. The concert ends, we get back in the car, or else we get on the train or whatever, put the headphones on, and we listen to the same act that we just saw probably for the next couple of days, because we're buzzing on it. Then it's all over, until the next time. It seems like there's a great opportunity to expand the dimensions before, during, and after the event. Before the event, there's all kinds of social activity that could be happening. There could be a way for me to communicate with other people that are also going, other fans. There could be ways for me to enjoy the event in a more deep fashion during the event. After the event, it should never leave. It should be perpetual. It's like, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? We're going to talk about all kinds of things like this, in and around this. But everybody here has got a different perspective, and so I want them to tell you for themselves who they are, what they do, so that you understand and we'll continue. And I want you guys to talk with us and interact the whole time, right? This is, you're, you're as important a part of the panel as this woman here. Almost. Go ahead, Judy. Take it away. More important. Aren't the fans always the most important in music? So, okay, I'm Judy Estrin. I'm CEO of Event Live, and I think we're the newest company on this uh, block here. We launched in April, and Event Live is all about extending or redefining the notion of a live concert to include online fans. So it is really about trying to take that shared experience, the anticipation leading up to it, the excitement of being part of it, and the memories after that, and how do you extend that onto an online venue. So we don't consider ourselves a streaming company per se, although live streaming of the concerts, both live and on demand, is a big part of what we do. We consider ourselves a company that is really developing an experience. It's a destination site across genres of music, across different artists, to, to bring live performance music and that thrill of live performance music to people who can't be there live. Don't believe you can ever actually replace the live experience, but you can extend it for a variety of reasons. So that's what we do, and I'm sure I'll be talking a lot more during the panel because I have a hard time keeping my mouth shut. So. I'm Tony. I work for Ustream. We're uh, the number one leader in live streaming video, about 81 million unique visitors monthly. We've been around for about six years. I would say we're the easiest, most viral streaming platform in the world for awareness, data, pay-per-view. If you want to monetize, come talk to me afterwards. I'm Chris McCutcheon, the CEO of TRI Studios. 
My job is uh, to steer the ship of Bob Weir's imagination. And uh, it, he is, in the typical Grateful Dead ethos, everything should be live all the time. And that is my day-to-day -day job. I don't really know how to follow that up. Um, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I'm Chris Roach. I, I run business development for AEG Digital Media. AEG is a, a very large media and entertainment company with its hands in several things like AEG Live, really selling sponsorships against uh, entertainment opportunities. We own venues like the Staples Center, like the Warfield here in San Francisco, to the O2 in London, promote tours like Justin Bieber's, Taylor Swift's, as well as just launched a ticketing platform to compete with Ticketmaster and Access Ticketing. Uh, the group I represent runs the, the digital media strategy for AEG, and we really focus on optimizing live video workflows for these types of events that AEG produces, as well as servicing third parties like a Ustream on the back end, even possibly could work with Judy's team at Event Live. That's a, that's a request for a meeting. And we do a lot of work <laughs> with, with, with Michael Sardin and the Vivo team work with YouTube and really have seen a wider range of, of different live event executions from a streaming side, from events on YouTube, on Ustream, on Livestream, on Vivo, I mean, really the, the run of the gamut. So really looking forward to, to having this conversation. In terms of you guys, what's the breakdown of, can we do entrepreneurs? Yeah. Label people? Industry? Can we break Who's those entrepreneurs else? down between music entrepreneurs and tech entrepreneurs? Yeah, okay, good question. Music entrepreneur versus tech entrepreneur. Music. Tech. Both. <laughs> All right, so, Chris, if, if um, somebody in this audience wants to put on a live streaming event and they want it to publish it to the web, to mobiles, to whatever, wherever they want to, what's their punch list look like? Can they, can they call you up and you give them everything off the truck? Yeah, I, I, I think the, the first place you start, and I, I think probably something we're going to talk about today is, is one, where's the concert live, right? Is it, is it a major venue? Like, uh, are we doing it out of the Staples Center? Are we doing it out of uh, out of Chris's studio? And do we have rights to stream it? I think those are the first two. And then you really just have to look at, at the workflow, and, and we can get as boring as you want to, or we can keep it as high level as you want to. Our company would, would help you uh, with that end-to-end, -end, but I think at the end of the day, it comes down to why you're doing this live stream. Do you want people to see it? Is it marketing? Are you selling against it? And then you look to someone like Avivo or someone like an event live or like a Ustream to help you with the distribution. But I think it really is starting with understanding where's the show going to be shot? Who's producing it? Who owns the rights? And why do you want to distribute it? So there's no denying the power of a live event, right? And it's the crowd, the excitement, all of that energy. Does that get transposed to the digital experience and how? I'll jump in. Sure. Uh, I, I think that it can get transposed, not exactly. And I think the places where in the past there's been a mistake is when we've tried to take real life and just put it on the web exactly the same. And, and that's been true of most technologies. When TV started out, they would put a room full of people and the TV cameras are in the back and they just kind of filmed the room until they realized, no, TV was about close up. And I think we have to do that same thing with concerts, which is we, the, the linear concert experience that has been on TV and on DVD does something. People buy some of them, some people like them, but it doesn't create that shared experience, that excitement. So I think that really in what we're just at 
version 1.0 of, but what really we need to be figuring out is our vision is what are those things? How do you leverage the interactivity and social aspects of the online world to create that emotional connection and that shared experience? But it's not easy. And I think it, it, it is going to evolve over time the same way other communities on the web have evolved over time. You know, I'd like to drop, we've, that was one of Bobby's primary goals. It's a more intimate experience actually staying home and watching one of our streams because you are inside the band. You, you are not going to get that good of view at a live show unless you're standing on stage. So one of the full aspects of Bob's was to bring the worldwide community together, which we enabled by tweeting and Facebook live interaction. We're fortunate. We have a built-in audience that was built on community, people traveling around following it. We regularly on our streams have you know, Super Bowl party type stuff, fans, and it brings the magic there. A lot of the, it's keeping a lot of these guys off the road, thank God, too, because of the, uh, <laughs> well, the, the full concert I, experience is brought along. Can I? You, okay, you I, I was just going to say, I, I think there's an interesting pull, and some of this may be generational, some of this may be, depend on genre, but there's an interesting pull when you talk about concerts and concert experience between an emotional connection with the artist and the music, which is one of the things you go to concerts for, and the emotional connection with the crowd and your peers. And those are two different things. So if Evan was up here talking about Stage It, he would talk about it's between the user and the musician. At Event Live, we're trying to do both, which is help that connection with the artist, but also leverage that community of that excitement. And if you look at where music is going, and obviously gen each generation has their own symbols, but if you look at the EDM space, how much of that is about the crowd yeah. and the energy of the crowd that we, this is a case where it's not one size fits all. And depending on what the artist wants and what you're trying to achieve, sometimes the intimate experience is sometimes you want, but sometimes that intimate experience is actually what you don't want because what people want is a shared one. I think you've said some, some really interesting things and made some great points around this. Now, our vision of how, how do you compare an insight on venue experience versus an online experience is one, I think you nailed it starting off your, your comment, was you can't re recreate the energy in any instance, you know, at, at a live stream, but you can start to recreate the experience by letting people share socially, um, you know, creating chats and conversations is something that your platform's done very well with. But also, and Chris, you kind of touched on this as well, is how can you start to create uh, an environment of experience that you're not going to be able to get when you're on site? Can you take the fans backstage? Can you start to introduce some of the stuff that, that Tony and his team did with um, the Passion Pit concert? Can you start to involve the crowd to contribute content back to um, the experience and really make the people at home want to become a part of the next one uh, because they're actually contributing and, and becoming a part of the experience and, and maybe not feeling the energy, but actually contributing to the creation of the content? Let's, let's talk a little bit about case studies. I just, just to touch on the Hype Machine experience was yeah. kind of cool. You know, we, we learned after all the years doing some production for these shows that we have to bring the live event there too. So. Yeah. At South By, we worked with Taco Bell to do a hype machine event with Passion Pit, which offered, I think, six different angles. 
and we chose, I think TechCrunch had a camera, Pitchfork had a camera, all these bloggers had a camera, so the user there could, or, or online could choose which angle they want. I think over time what we learned, especially with a lot of the streams that I get calls from AEG and Live Nation, we've got fans shooting on their mobile phone, <laughs> what's going on, this isn't part of our production. Um, and we've, we've actually turned those problems into, I think, solutions. And that's what we're all learning. Like, my dream is to see a stage for fans next to the soundboard with their mobile phones being able to stream a show. Even if it looks like crap, most people online don't care. It's like, wow, I'm watching a Nicki Minaj show? And the next step would be, how do we monetize this? <laughs> I, I think, Judy, too, on the EDM comment, I, I'm curious if there's anybody in here that, that from a business perspective that's focused on EDM. Um, but trying to recreate the energy that you would fill at an ADM show online is, is a challenge. It's one that, that our group is, is working through right now with a couple partners. I mean, hopefully we're going to, to display that this summer with a couple events. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting challenge to be able to create um, entertainment from a guy standing up there with headphones on his head um, when, when all the madness is happening in the crowd. And I'd love to hear you know, anyone's feedback of, of how you could tackle that issue. I think at this point, it's still serving to augment ticket sales and promoting the live event to get people. That's the, the best use I've seen of it for bands is to come in and do a live stream. So people who have never seen them before live see something different than the, like what they heard. So at this stage, yeah, until we get to smell a vision and... Uh, <laughs> We're <know>. almost there. <laughs> exactly. It'll, it'll come soon. So uh, I guess I think there is something in between and in that... And I'm not saying we have all the answers, and, and part of what we're doing is is learning. Just go ahead um, and say it. You do. But no, <laughs> no, because actually, one of the interesting things about live streaming right now, which is makes it challenging, is that we're trying to change two behaviors at once. Usually, when a new technology or something new comes out, well, you may be trying to expose consumers and change consumer behavior, or you're trying to shift an industry, but the consumers already know they want it. We're in the process of trying to help artists and, and rights holders in the music industry accept a new technology and figure out how to best leverage it both for a revenue stream and to help market and help engage your fans. But we're also talking about changing consumer behavior because users don't know what you can experience <coughs> online yet. They don't think to go online to get to a concert. It's coming, and yes, there are some companies who have been around for a while longer, but it's not yet gotten to a level of maturity. So I think that if you wait until you get to perfection, then you never get there. And that there are things that you can do in between, again, with shared experiences and in the way you present the information that can be right for the online audience. And one thing I'll throw out there, for instance, and some artists don't like this idea, is maybe the right thing for the online audience isn't all 90 minutes of the concert. Maybe it's sampling parts of it and the whole idea of being able to do other things at once. Again, an artist doesn't like that idea because they're performing and they want somebody to watch for 90 minutes. But it could be that a linear online 90-minute concert it's where we are today. It may not be where we are three or four years from now as the best way to engage people, and certainly if you're talking about something like the EDM space. So I, I think we need to lift the obstacles that are 
we all know the talk about the rights and the bureaucratic issues that stop us from easily moving, but I think we have to lift the obstacles that are in our heads about what does a concert look like, what does a concert act like, and s instead say, what does a concert feel like? That's what we're trying to get, is that emotion, that feeling, and then how do you re recreate that online? But and I think, I think you have to turn things over to get there. But, why, but I, I don't think it's also prudent to focus on replicating or duping because it never will be. It's, it's as Bobby, our mission statement when I decided to take over the job was this building will tell us what it wants to be. And How nice for you guys. Oh, it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. said, and it really... I said recreating. We all have people to report to, but yeah, uh, I guess yeah, well, you guys don't. Oh, okay. So, recre yeah, I mean, what we're seeing is, is developing... different than replicating. So. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a very salient point. Must feel really good over there. <laughs> our... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> our our audience, smell really good too. You know, <laughs> our audience is telling us really what they want to see more of, and it's up to us to respond to that and offer them completely different experiences. How much of the time is live really live? And how much does that matter, right? Because I know we have like a catalog of like eighty thousand videos, and like ten percent of them are live. You know, yeah, I'm not VOD. here right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm fifteen. Minutes. But but we get an incredible, a really long tail of people watching. You know the after. I, I think it's it, you could ask all four of us, and you're going to get four different answers. Ninety-five to ninety-nine percent of the video that that we put on the internet is live, live. You're talking anywhere from four to thirty seconds latent. But the question is not, you know, it, it, the question becomes, why are you doing it? As to to answer your question, right? Is it is yeah. is, a, is a brand trying to get brand recognition? Is an artist trying to promote a new album? Is it a combination of both? I mean, look at the American Express on stage stuff. I mean, we've worked on this together for three years now. Uh, they're talking like 160 million uniques over three years. Pretty good recognition for American Express. But, you know, again, it, it is, is, it the, is it the artist behind it? Is it the label behind it? Is it the brand behind it? Or is it the portal behind it? And for, for me, I, I, that's what I have to look at to answer that question. All right. Tony? I always like the conversation of live because we talk about live live, but you know what I've seen, this is just video. I think we're, you know, we're in the 1950s of television right now in live streaming. And what we're starting to see is you could take that VOD and stream it live. That's what TV is. So I think we, we all need to really open up our minds and say, wow, okay, maybe I can take this exclusive event, push it online and create something really special that event is exclusive, you could time shift it. And this is something at Ustream that we, we launched that is allowing folks to get around a lot of hurdles, production hurdles, you know, issues with, with rights and licensing and editing and creating an experience that makes sense for you, the publisher, too. But I think, you know, we're barely scratching that surface. But I mean, to, to be a little bit cynical, I mean, it, when, you look at when you look at television, there's only a few things that are truly live live, right? You have football, you have soccer, baseball, yep. sports. And then you have award shows. When, when I think about what you just said, you go back to the question of why is content created, right? And content is traditionally created to be monetized. And, and yep. if you are... I wish I lived in your world, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's our world. It, it, it's, it's all of our world, right? I mean, people aren't just producing. Maybe you guys are a little bit different story. Yeah, got, hey, man, I want to go on. Turn the camera on. Okay. <laughs> Shit, why am I doing this? Uh, we all don't have that, that leisure. Yeah. And, and tra traditionally, when content is being created, it's because bills. somebody's going to pay for it and someone expects to make some money on it down the road. So it's, uh, th that's a challenge of, of just creating 
content unless you work for Bob Weir. I, I think the, the question when you were talking about what is live and really comes down to, again, there are two aspects of live live, and, and I agree with Tony. You want, some people want simultaneous live. You want it streamed as it's happening. Some people want to capture that and make it look like a live event, but from a file, for whatever reason. Maybe they want to wait till the end of the tour. Maybe they want to play around with the audio and the video a little bit, touch it up. There's lots of reasons why you want, and we, we happen to call that sim live. You can call it encore live, whatever. And then there's on demand of a live event, which can be done in a variety of ways. But the the key thing about the live live, there are two aspects of it that you just need to decide how important they are. One is the sense of expectation of what might happen. If it is live live, or in sim live, maybe if nobody has done a spoiler alert, you may know this, but if it's live live, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what that artist is going to say. You don't know if there's going to be a wardrobe malfunction. You have no idea what's going to happen. And there is an anticipation to that that you can't recreate with sim live or on demand. The other part of live is, again, you're doing something at exactly the same time as lots of other people. That's that shared experience. And that you can get with live live or a simulated live type of event. And the notion that you're doing something together, and we are, after all, humans, that even though technology is trying to make us not be tribe-like, we are. There is something that binds us together. And as technology is in some ways pulling us apart, I think things like concerts become more important because concerts physically bring us together. And so, again, the idea of online is not to replace that, but to extend that so that people who can't be there can feel like they're there. I think we're redefining together. We're, we're really... Right now? Live? Yeah, I, I, as we speak, yeah. Well, I, I, I hope think we don't redefine yeah, it too I mean, much it's, because... It's, it's sad for humanity's sake, but it, then it's a benefit for people who live thousands of miles away, but that's an unfortunate but Why can't you have aspect. both? Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm arguing for, for both, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think it's all in the programming and the packaging. Like, I had an artist, Junkie XL, that we couldn't stream a show. And so we went back and we were just thinking about all the things that the fans want. It's like, the fans just want an experience. So we streamed the show again, VOD to live, and he just did audio commentary. It was just DVD commentary. It could have been him doing that live on a VOD to live. I think you just coined the phrase live live though, Judy. That's, that's <laughs> all you. But that was an experience and that was an event. And that for, has forever changed the way I think of and what, what, the fans, what the fans want. So what kind of questions do you guys have that this esteemed panel can help answer and shed light to? Maybe we haven't proven ourselves as yeah. esteemed. Yeah. <laughs> and please state who you are so that we know what you do kind of thing too. Hi, my name is Lucas Gons. I work on music technology services like a webcasting service. I wonder about rights issues that have come up. So for example, if you have a DJ streaming live in the EDM world, it's inevitable. It's a pretty complex bundle of issues. So, as I said, uh, I'll that, jump in if you want th me to jump in. But. There's no real answer to that other than you just try. The, okay. the, the EDM ones are, are really difficult from a rights perspective. You can typically get through live live rights. I love Judy's, Judy. I love Judy's <laughs> perspective and Michael's perspective on, on the VOD rights. But one thing that we've seen from 
from our end of, of getting rights cleared, getting live live rights cleared are, are pretty easy to do because it's a one-time passing. But if you want to play that video tomorrow or the next day or next month, good luck. Right. It's, it's typically not going to happen unless you have a big checkbook. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, the, the on-demand part is very difficult if it is sampled and, you know, DJ type of EDM music. So what Chris was alluding to is those of us who do live streaming, you get PRO licenses that cover the public performance, and then you're covered for all of the publishing. I naively have a dream that five years from now, that's optimistic, but five years from now, maybe we will have worked between the technology industry and the music industry to not still be sitting here and saying, we can't do on demand of a very, very, very popular music genre because of sync licenses and that we will yeah. figure out how to solve that problem in, in a similar way that we've done the, the performance rights licenses, but today that is, to anybody who wants to do things legally, that's a big stop sign. Michael, I don't know if it was you that said it, but uh, someone talked about technologists in, in the music industry need to come together a little bit more, and, and the music industry really needs to start to understand how the technology works for them to feel a little bit more comfortable about prolonging those rights. And one of the things that, that we're really starting to focus on at AEG is when those touring deals are negotiated and when the promotional elements of the deals are negotiated, make sure to put the digital component in it. But at this point, the people that are making the majority of those deals are so far down the scope of checklist that, that the digital rights aren't, aren't really thought about until the day before. It's like, oh, well, can we, can we get this done now? Absolutely, uh, and it's always a fire drill <laughs> yes. to get those things up. Yeah, it's also changing a little bit because more artists are keeping their rights. And as long as it's, when it's artist-driven, it's so much easier. We, we're sitting on a lot of content that people would love to see simply because it's a Chuck Berry tune or Warren Zevon, and there's just no way we can get that. You know, it's, it's sad that these guys are trying to make up for getting screwed by the record industry now with sync licensing, but that's just that's the way the world is right now. So when we can get sync taken care of, there's a lot of stuff to come out. So as someone who has had a foot in, well, both my feet in the technology industry for most of my career and one of my feet in the entertainment industry on the board of Disney for 15 years, I'm very sensitive to both of these issues, to rights as well as technology. But I will say that those technology companies who are ignoring the rights issues and just saying, you know what, we're just going to go out and do this and we'll worry about the rights when someone comes after us is actually not doing us any favors. Yeah. Because it's companies like that that make it harder for those of us who are trying to do this with the industry when we go have a conversation. Why, why do people not change? Fear. Fear is what stops people from changing. And, and so things like Napster in the past or experiences where the technology industry was viewed as just not caring about the, whether it's movie or TV or music, that's what created that fear. And so, and every time another, I talk to another entrepreneur who says, oh, don't worry about the rights. You're just too conservative. We're just going to go out and do this. And if somebody comes after us, they come after us. That just reinforces the position of we're just going to stay here and not move. And what we really need to be doing is trying to work together to come up with a paradigm 
that works in a world that's not going to go away, and that's the digital world. Other questions? Sir. Hi, I'm, I'm R.F. Hussein. I've actually worked with a number of you guys in the CDN space, but I'm curious which, if... Which, comp which CDN? Akamai? Akamai, yeah, sure. You were my client. Um, yeah. <laughs> you and a few others. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I've heard of you. My question is, I'm, I'm really <laughs> eager to take advantage of live concerts, and I'm curious to what degree there would be a combination of existing venues supporting live feeds. So I can't make it to Shoreline, but I can get to the movie theater near my house. Is there some idea that you might have a live event that's distributed in terms of location? I, I think the first thing you have to think about is AG is enormous. We own and operate 120 venues around the world, right? From Staples Center to the Warfield to the O2 to the... Don't you guys have something going on with the Jacksons? Uh, <laughs> oh, never mind. <laughs> no comment. Um, <laughs> but the challenge is... is That's is the only reason anybody knows who AEG is. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Check no, you know, you know, at the end user level, right? I mean, in the business, we all know who AEG yeah, is. Right, absolutely. Tweet that now. Yeah, tweet that. But really, I, I think it comes down to the, the question that we just answered previously is the people that own those venues, they don't own the rights to that content. So if, if you know, Elton John is playing at Shoreline, just because he's at Shoreline doesn't give Shoreline the, the ability to stream that show. Unfortunately for us, I mean, uh, we would have a very healthy content business and would put that little startup that Michael is working for out, out of business pretty quickly. <laughs> but I think that in, until we figure out how to get downstream of those conversations where those rights are negotiated at the promotion level so every time a new artist goes into a new venue the, the streaming can happen uh, you're you're not going to be able to to solve the 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 end user problem that you you'd yeah. like to see on our side of the thing though we're doing that coming up with some major artists so we've been approached several times to do the met opera thing for rock and roll and yeah, so that's I, I, that's, that's really just right around the corner yeah um, i was going to say i i think maybe understanding your question, there is, there is nothing that stops somebody from deciding to try to do that. The Metropolitan Opera does a wonderful job of that. It's just a different model and has its own rights and costs in terms of the setup, which is different from bringing it to your mobile device or your laptop. But I believe it'll happen. Yeah, I think, you know, the... Yeah. Yeah, when, it's, when the artists are stakeholders and when they do it, and they get on board and say, okay, we're going to do this, and the guys who, if they don't own their licensing are on it, full speed ahead. The theaters need it. I mean, you it. have yeah. sports bars today. Why not have, so one is big theaters, but you have sports bars today. Why not have concert bars? Why not have bars that are able to, and again, within the rights, within the right people getting paid, why shouldn't you be able to have a concert that, you know, especially sold out tours that is available streamed into different places. So, so I, I just want to add, add to this real quick. In terms of working with these venues, we've had a lot of experience on our end. We all work with venues, but it's all about education. You know, I, I look at the guys that have been shooting B-roll with artists for years and the guys that are producing and the folks that are dipping their toes into live streaming. And my challenge is you have a lighting guy, you have a sound guy. Where's your live streaming engineer? Mm -hmm. Once I get there, and I get that guy included, and now he sees a new revenue stream, it's going to help. Which companies were you referring to? Who's got traction to this? Uh, 
the Miley Cyrus and the, the, the U2 concerts in 3D right, in the theaters. Right. I remember that. And then there was a startup I worked with in Santa Cruz called Virtual Venues Network with John Luini, who started uh, Ayuma. And that was mm -hmm. about seven years ago. And we, d we were doing the sports bars concept with streaming concerts into bars and movie theaters. So we, this has been tried. We, we, it's not we a new do model. A, a decent amount of content into movie theaters today. Um, we did a run with Fish. We did a run with Bon Jovi, with Dave yeah. Matthews. We did about 15 to 20 different artists and have continued to, you'll see a couple pop up every now and, now and again. I think at that point, the challenge becomes discovery. Right. Uh, yeah. But that's a different, to totally oh, different conversation. Uh -huh. They're sold b between 7 and $20 tickets. And successfully? Successfully, yes. We'll come back to discovery. There's a question in the back. I think Prince was the first one to do the theaters. Tell uh, us who you are. My Sorry. name's Howard Sapper from the Harmony Festival. And my question's around cause marketing and how do you see the future in terms of nonprofits and cause marketing in the streaming business in terms of, because the biggest events we always had that were on TV that were seen by a lot of people were all around cause events. And how do you see that in the commercial market? Thank you. Yeah, Live Aid was huge, remember? Yeah, we, we actually, uh, prior to AEG acquiring uh, the company that is AEG Digital Media, it was Incited Media, we worked with MSN and AOL to do Live Aid and Live Earth this last year. Uh, we partnered with Michael and, and Vivo and, and did the Global um, Citizens Festival out of Central Park. And I, I think from a commercial perspective, it's, it's kind of tricky because you want all the money that's raised to cover the cost of production plus the, you know, anything left over going back to, back to the charity. I think that what we were able to see, and Michael, feel free to chime in here, I think what we were able to see in the Global Citizens Festival model that people are very willing to, to extend dollars to to become part of, of of those types of experiences and you start to see more and more benefits on the music side happening uh, with big commercial backers behind behind them so i think that it's a a very viable model moving forward i think it just comes down to awareness and, and figuring out who are the players involved and, and where the funds are appropriated to uh, you know, we were able to distribute it on, I think we were on seven different primetime portals, like uh, Viva was the primary, it was on YouTube, uh, AOL, Yahoo, uh, New York Times, Globo in Brazil, plus you can then take it and put it on television as well. So AEG has an ownership and access TV, so it was carried there. It was carried on some CBS properties. It was carried at that level. So from an awareness standpoint, the amount of eyeballs you're able to reach is is unprecedented, right? It's a global market. Um, but again, it, it comes down to discovery and promotion. How, how do people okay. find out about the Global Poverty uh, Project and the Global Citizens Festival online? And how do they know to tune in to YouTube or to Ustream at, or Vivo or Event Live at, at, at 11 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon? So, um, so I think that... Yeah, I was going to say, I think there's a discovery element, but I think also long-term, as more and more of this moves to the online that you can take advantage of the kind of quote-unquote micro donations that are done online very effectively. So if you take the kind of online version of, you know, texting to a number that you automatically donates 10 bucks, well, if you are, if you have an online version of this and can integrate in a very quick click that then allows you to automatically donate a certain amount and, you know, whether it is a a credit card or a micropayment or some other easy way that actually you don't even have to put in that information, then I think that there's a way to tap into 
many more numbers of small donations for these causes that aren't necessarily being tapped into with with the physical. That, that's a great point. We we were able to enable a text to donate, mm -hmm. so there was no credit credit card exchange through a company called MGive. Not sure. I'm sure you've you've heard of them, but that that is there's a mobile application that makes the monetization. Uh, very easy for the audience, which you, you obviously want to do. Well, that benefit for Sandy was a big deal. I remember huge. donating through iTunes. It was like yep. mm -hmm. nice. so easy. Yeah, it was huge. That was, that was the friction, most frictionless experience I've ever had. Both ways. If the, if the nonprofit affiliation is strong enough and their outreach and their foundations are strong enough, they can drive customers to you. Sure. We're doing an event with the Giants in August and we're selling tickets for them. And we're actually, at the end, we're giving free hot dogs and food to the customers and we're raising money and giving it to the Junior Giants program. So not only are we getting from them, but we're giving back to them. So I think that that's the paradigm shift that we're looking for is the nonprofit, the profit sector, finding a way for it to be a two-way street so that everyone benefits from it. Well, that by far has been our, our largest viewership was our headcount benefit with Bob and members of the National, a bunch of indies out of Brooklyn. It's probably by 20x our viewership. It was Yahoo carried it and promoted it. It was, uh, it was fantastic and it brought a disparate audience, I mean, a huge audience from their side. Other questions in the audience? Right here. Hi there. My name is Peter. I work on an event series locally called Nightlife at the California Academy of Sciences. I kind of noticed some interesting things with live streaming. It's, it's kind of a dated reference at this point, but the Tupac hologram moment at Coachella when everyone's watching that. To me, I saw technology being as important to get people to watch these live streams as the concert itself. Yeah. Could you talk about maybe some case studies where now that there's so many festivals and so much live streaming and it's sort of just you know increasingly going to water down you know, with so much content, what are you doing with these festivals to create those special moments that, you know, make people want to tune in and see something they've never seen before? Can I just say one thing before you oh, give a case no, study? No. I, I, I just want to object to one thing you said before they do get the case studies, we but haven't been around as long, which is I don't think there's so much content that anything's being watered down. If you look at the availability of live concerts on the web compared to the availability of TV programs or movies that you can watch, it's night and day. I think one of the problems, I know, but I think one of the problems is there isn't enough online, and so people don't naturally assume that there's going to be the things they want to watch online and they don't go to look. So I think we're at a point now where there's just been these kind of siloed one-offs, and so people don't naturally go to the web for long-form content. So I, I actually, I think your question's a great question, but I just want to say I don't think we're anywhere close to that watered-down stage in terms of, or even critical mass in terms of content. <laughs> like vying. I, I agree with Judy. I think, you know, part of it is on us and these live streaming platforms to figure out the programming and the packaging. You know, a lot of what I've seen, I'm not a boxing fan, but I've learned a hell of a lot from UFC and MMA. They do an announcement, they'll do a fan chat, they'll do a weigh-in. And we just started thinking when we were working with festivals and artists, like, wow, we should do that too. And so we'll have artists do the live announcement, they'll do a live press release, which I think is still so new. Every time I talk to a publicist at a label, they're just like, that's new media department. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I worked at a new media department, are they still being called that? Multimedia. Yeah, man. But, like, let me break it down for you. I think, like, 
yeah, we can have those free events and we can have a pay-per-view event or a cause, but if there isn't the announcement, if there isn't a chat, if there isn't this interactive experience and all these things, I've even seen artists do commercials now. It's like 1950s TV all over again, leading up. And, and all these little hooks are then going to connect with the consumer and they're going to decide, okay, do I want to pay for a ticket or watch for free, be sponsored? Another part of it, I hate to say it, guys, but you're watering down your experience. I've heard everyone tell me I need to pay a dollar or five dollars for a pay-per-view, and I'm like, you're selling your tickets for 60 bucks. The production's amazing. You're doing five hours behind the scenes. No. I, I feel like we're there with with a la carte and, and fans are willing to pay. If you charge fans only $5, they're going to think the production probably sucks. And, and, and you're going to go out of business, maybe. But, but I think we all really need to dig deep and, and think about all those little elements because at the end of the day, it's you know all this programming and packaging. and it's, Okay, it's here's there. an idea. You know how the, the boxers have the weigh-in. Yep. Artists can have the tune-in. That's right. They tune up their guitars. The coolest it's thing content, I ever did dude. was with John Mayer, and he did, he, you know, Eddie, you did that, right? The John Mayer event? No, maybe not. Another Eddie. But he was walking off his tour bus, talking to craft services, tuning his guitar. It was just, you know, on the fly. And we used it, I think, leading up to a show, but it was the coolest thing I've ever seen an artist do for fans. And those behind the scenes, those fly-in-the-wall moments leading up to a big show are the things the fans actually want to see. To the, the only thing I have to add is to, on the festival question of, you know, you start to see the holograms and you start to see Bonnaroo pop up, then Coachella pop up, then Lollapalooza. So, so we've done, we've handled the back end of these for the last four years um, it, before festival streaming was r really a thing. And, and every year you see viewership grow on the webcasts, <coughs> you see tickets sell out faster, and you see more festivals popping up around the globe. Um, so from my perspective, uh, uh, looking at it on the business side, it's, a, it's an unbelievable marketing tool for these tier two festivals to, to really reach a global audience. Um, and then it's a new platform for artists to get their music out there that, that may not be touring um, to, to folks in, in Omaha, Nebraska, for example. Um, so I, I think um, it, it, consumers have a, a, a pretty big uh, tolerable patience uh, for for new types of content to come on, and, and whether it's just a guy with a, with a guitar singing, um, fans are fans, and, and they want to discover new music. So I, I think that we're safe from yeah, from watering it down. I'd agree with the point that he's making: is the population's growing. There's new fans to be made every day, so there's there's an endless audience to grow. Plus, just back to the B-roll versus performance, and we looked at a study: our B-roll interview rehearsal stuff. Our average viewer stayed six minutes on the video while our straight performance was four minutes, 30, 34 seconds. People would much rather see the, the B-roll. We, we saw that at Coachella last year, the average view time, average view time was 58 minutes. So every viewer almost on an average, and we're not talking about 100 viewers, we're talking seven figures per day, you know, close to uh, 20 million viewers over the course of a weekend the average was almost an hour. So the people that tuned in and only watched for, um, you know, 30 seconds or two minutes, um, you have people that are really engaging in this content and really looking to discover um, some of these new artists. So it's a, interesting. All right, panel members, one last question. What are you guys going to do? You each got to answer this. What are you going to do to help us achieve scale and, you know, real discovery and real 
monetization of some of this stuff. What do you, let's start with you. What are you going to do in the next 12 months? Well, I think our whole vision... Pledge, pledge to the audience I, now. You mean I, I'm pledging to you, okay? okay? Um, I think our whole vision is, and the whole way we've gone about uh, building the company is from the technology platform to the way we've designed the experience to our the way we've worked with the industry on our rights infrastructure and the way we are partnering with artists to try to make sure that uh, um, we can uh, jointly go out and promote it is all about the long term. Nothing we've done has been a short term fix. Our company is built that sounds funny, but built to scale. The, the infrastructure is built to scale. The, the way we work with the industry is built to scale. Our biggest challenge is uh, what I said in the beginning, getting the industry to understand the benefits. More people, right now we're working with in early adopters, let's say, but getting more and more artists to be willing to take the risk that it actually is not a risk, but is something that um, can help market and be a monetization stream and to just get consumers and get get the promotion out to the consumers and we need the artists help to do that as well as we are engaging ourselves in establishing event live one of the reasons why we've created in a destination site is to be able to create a network effect between fans and artists so that people know there is a place to go and you get you discover new artists when you're there to see one artist. So we felt that one of the things that was going on is that the places where you viewed the concerts was distributed all over the web. And by pulling together and creating, not only have we been able to create a different experience because we're not on someone else's platform, but we're able to curate content and then promote the brand and the content. So uh, what you asked is what we're all about and is our vision to, for the long term. Excellent. I, I totally agree with Judy. I think there's, it, everyone talks about risk. This is a calculated risk. Live streaming offers analytics and data that just goes so wide and far for you. The thing is, there are fans out there wanting and waiting for artists to go live. There's, there's such an opportunity there. We're not all sitting here talking on other panels about all these opportunities. There's solutions here. Choose. Go out there, take a calculated risk, learn from it, go out to your fans, integrate with them, and I think you'll be surprised. Uh, for us, more cowbell. <laughs> we're actually going the old state. We're, actually, we're taking, uh, we've developed a weekly show. We are here. It's more of a Variety Smothers Brothers on Acid meets, you know, in part with concert. And we're actually taking it on the road, starting with the June 12th, our first show out. It will be at Terrapin Crossroads with a live audience instead of Insider Studio. And then we're doing a, a uh, tour in December, which we'll announce shortly. And we're looking to back up what we do in our controlled studio environment and take it to smaller theaters, two to 4,000 and really interact with the audience in real time, live, live. I, I think we'll continue to, to do what we've always done is that, and that's really just make sure that we're providing our partners like, like Vivo, like a, like a Ustream um, or like an event live, the most robust backend technologies to scale. Um, make sure that we're treating everything like a television broadcast and um, enabling them the confidence to go out and figure out the discovery portion of, of solving the, the discovery scale issue. Oh, so we got to figure that out. Yeah, yep. Okay. You, okay. you, don't you work for, for YouTube startup Vivo? <laughs> 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 
Thank you. <laughs> Go ahead, Judy. I know yeah, you got I, something I'm, to say. I'm, You're itching. No, no, no. I, I am, and I was going to save you from needing to answer that question or get, get upset about that question. I, I think that you asked what we're going to do, and we just answered that question. But I think what we all need from the music industry is to look at this opportunity. When we say there's no risk, there actually isn't much risk because in many cases there isn't upfront money going into this in a lot of cases. There is the potential of money coming in from sponsorship or pay-per-view. So the risk is the opportunity cost. Why am I gonna do this? Well, if you're already doing a concert, then again, there's not a lot of risk. It's extending that concert online. But there is a little bit of a mentality amongst some people in the industry, which is I'm not gonna do anything unless I get paid now for it. So every opportunity I weigh is dollars coming in today. And I understand that given where the industries come from. But if we are going to develop this new revenue stream, it's going to take some investment on both sides and the investment from the music industry side is actually just saying yes yes i'll try yes i don't need to get a million a half a million a thousand ten thousand whatever your number is i don't need to get it right now i will engage in this experimentation that we're all doing because in new markets that's what it's all about it's showing users what they can get, seeing what they like, learning and adapting, and giving them more of what they like. And that's what all of us are doing in this industry, but we can't do it without content. A great metaphor that someone told me the other day is if you build a beautiful museum but you have no artwork to put in it, people aren't gonna come. So those of us who are in the business of providing the streaming, we're building the museums, and we are partnering to show off the art and make it look fantastic. We need the artists or the people who own the art to cooperate. And that, that isn't risk, it's opportunity cost. And so I don't wanna just make a commitment. I'd like a commitment back if there's anybody here from the yeah. music industry. So. A couple of months ago, I made this thing called Vivo TV, which is like this 24 by 7 linear streamed version of Vivo. And I'm going to figure out how to stitch live into that because that's on all of our platforms and consoles and all those places now. So I'm going to, and sorry, you, you're not a part of the Vivo TV. <laughs> it's a different CTN. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get the, oh, all right. All right. But uh, so we're going to work like mad to stitch all the live stuff into those experiences so that we, we can bring distribution to the table. So we're going to do a better job at that. And we're also going to notify people, helping with the discovery thing. We just built this whole new push notification thing. It works. We're going to make sure that it's like, you know, that you don't get hit with the Bieber alert. <laughs> that you get, we want you to get hit with like the Alabama Shakes alert, right? Yep. So we're going to get all that right. Yep. I think that's all we got, folks. Thanks for hanging out with us.